Welcome to Warm Regards, conversations from the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, assistant professor at the University of Maine. Joining me this week is my co-host, Ramesh Langani, associate professor of biology from Doan University in Nebraska. How's it going, Ramesh? Good. How are you? I'm all right. The summer kind of went by a little too quickly. Um, when do you guys start back at school? Uh, we have started. So I am on day three of my semester right now. Okay. So I won't complain because we don't start till after Labor Day weekend. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I got I got to teach my first couple of classes of climate change biology. So it's been it's been great so far. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I hope we can hear more about that as the as the fall progresses. Um yeah, it's uh, it's been a, <laughs> it's a lot's happened since our last episode. Um, it's it's definitely been an interesting week in a in an interesting year of of climate change and political news. Um, for me, I think the one of the really big highlights, or or at least one of the big stories, is um, there there have been a lot of the, these really almost scary stories kind of with a very doom and gloom pr- perspective, especially, um, you know, between the the wildfires that have been going on for a few weeks now. Um, earlier in the week, there were um, some stories about rollbacks to Obama's clean power plan um, and really scary news that some of the oldest Arctic sea ice is now melting. And in fact, some parts of the Arctic Ocean are no longer freezing at all. Um, and we're not going to talk about any of that um, <laughs> today in the show. Um, but one one thing that really interested me was the response that I started seeing from a lot of folks, specifically that um, it was it's like I just saw so many people say, okay, it's game over now for climate change. Like it's no longer, uh, you know, mitigation is no longer an option. We all have to adapt. You know, that's it. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, Ramesh, did you run into any of these sort of responses yourself or what do you, what do you, what's your take home? So uh, yeah, so I saw a similar sentiment uh, sort of coming out of the Twitterverse, uh, sort of doom and gloom, sort of game over. I didn't really see even people mentioning the idea of, well, we have to start adapting. I just saw um, game over. And so that was a little bit disheartening to me. And it got me thinking about this idea about how do we as society, how do we stay hopeful around climate change when we see these big changes occurring, the oldest sea ice melting. Um, and, you know, again, the, the, the proposed rollbacks to the clean power plan are just that proposed. And but again, the I think the combination of wildfires that are going on, um, these proposed rollbacks, again, it just it's understandably leads to people. Uh, leads people potentially to a dark place. But, um, you know, so the, the question becomes, how do we stay hopeful? Yeah, well, what was interesting about this last week for me was even, bef- bef- even before all the doom and gloom tweets and articles actually and hot takes about, you know, the game over for climate change, um, people very have recently started asking me, how do you stay hopeful? How, is is there a point to this, um, you know, can we do anything? I do my I do my bit as a citizen and a consumer, but is it really making a difference? And the it's been really interesting to see this transition in the general public that I interact with, where people are just feeling so angsty about this. And so when I saw, um, and, I, and I don't I don't mean to just completely pick on the Washington Post here, but there was um, there was one story specifically that said the title originally was 
this is the day the climate change fight was obviously lost. And the, the, the title is slightly tweaked later to add something like for this generation. But I, I, I saw a lot of climate scientists retweeting that and responding to that article in the Washington Post saying, this is really irresponsible. This is not the end. All is not lost. And what I found really fascinating was that the people who were the most negative were people who weren't scientists. It was journalists, maybe activists, just concerned citizens. Um, but the climate scientists themselves have, have been saying, you know, you still can reduce emissions. Reducing emissions is still a really important goal. We, you know, we, we can still roll back the tide to a certain extent. Um, you know, the, the idea of uh, adaptation is, uh, you know, we, we need to be adapting, obviously, because we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. But mitigating mit- or mitigation rather is uh, is is going to make that adaptation so much easier. It's it's still worthwhile to do both. And, and that w- that split was so fascinating to me that the climate scientists were remaining much more hopeful um, than the, the the journalists and the, the activists, et cetera. Yeah, I saw a couple of really great tweets, um, I think right around when the ice news broke, no pun intended, mm. um, from Kate Marvel. Oh, yeah. Um, I write the climate change blog for Scientific American. Which is awesome. That was sort of that same sentiment. Like, yeah, we're facing some challenges, but we can do this. There's still a place for mitigation. There's a place for adaptation. We just have to think creatively and, and do the things right. Get them, get it done. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting observation you made about that sort of dichotomy between the scientific community and sort of the, I don't want to say non-scientific community, but sort of journalists and non-scientists. Yeah. So it's, it begs this question, right? Like how do we stay hopeful? And, um, you, you know, you, this brings me to the topic of our show, which is that you and I just came back a couple of weeks ago from the Ecological Society of America meetings in New Orleans. And for those of you who, um, or for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with what a scientific meeting is like, um, uh, Ramesh, uh, what would, how would you describe it to someone like an alien uh, anthropologist from another planet? Like, what is a scientific meeting like? Sure. Right. So. Um, so this so this meeting, I think, is don't quote me on the numbers here, but I think it's somewhere between like six and eight thousand scientists getting together in a single place, trading ideas, you know, and, and it's all types of scientists at all stages of their career from undergraduates to graduate degree, uh, graduate students to, um, you know, assistant and associate professors. Um, there are industry reps there and we're all trading ideas about, in this case, ecology and the state of ecology and and, and the research that's going on. And the, the conference is sort of broken up into, I would say, two major sort of types of communication. One is individuals talking about their research, giving formal presentations on their research um, with, let's say, like PowerPoint slides and presentations in, in little rooms. And then the other part is uh, these big poster sessions where a lot of students and other profs and other presenters are you know, sort of in the in a big exhibit hall, they've got um, hundreds of posters up highlighting research as well. And so it's a great place to just immerse yourself in ecology, see what's going on. A lot of the talks, a lot of the topics have to deal with climate change and the ecological impacts of climate change. So um, on all sorts of ecosystems, both 
on the land and in the ocean and on animals and plants and physiology. It's really, I mean, you just, you're almost on ecology overload. I mean, I, I know there were times during the meeting I had to sort of just step away and get a cup of coffee and just say, okay, I need to not think about ecology for five minutes or at least five minutes um, before I ran. Well, one thing that was really cool for me, um, and I, I've been going to this meeting now for over 10 years and, you know, since I was just starting in graduate school. And um, I would say like, there's, there've been a lot of changes in the meeting since I first started going. And one of the big changes that's been super exciting in the last few years is how many sessions there were on science communication. Mm -hmm. I was on a panel about uh, Twitter and um, other forms of uh, social media. I was also on another panel uh, talking about scientific storytelling and outreach. And there are just so many people who are not just interested in doing the research, but also just really bursting that ivory tower model, um, getting out there, communicating their own science in really creative ways, um, working with policy makers, working with local communities, with indigenous communities, um, uh, ed education. There were tons of cool sessions on teaching and ecology. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's not, it's not so much just a scientific meeting per Absolutely. se anymore. It's, it's also about what do we do with that science? How does it matter? Absolutely. And I'll give a shout out to the ESA science communication sort of group. They're doing some really amazing things. And uh, I sat in on a couple of sessions and I was sort of blown away by, by the work they're doing. Yeah. Uh, was there a particular like talk or session that was really, uh, that you thought was really neat? Um, one was, one that I thought was really great was talking about how can scientists construct a one pager, um, sort of a one page summary for either policymakers or administrators about why their research is important. And, and the idea of how to structure that in terms of language and physical layout of the page. How do we not overshare too many details and caveats that we as scientists are often too comfortable doing in a scientific paper. So how do we really hone, our, hone and sharpen our message for the audience, for the particular and precise audience that we're trying to get at? So that was a really powerful session for me. Oh, cool. Um, I, I think one of the highlights for me was a talk by a scientist that I really admire, um, Steve Jackson. He's a paleoecologist who now works for the um, U.S. Geological Survey's um, Southwest Climate Science Center. Um, and he gave a really neat talk about uh, climate refugia. And the, it, this sounds like kind of a weird word, but it comes from the word refuge, which uh, basically means... Um, it comes from the Latin for re, which is back, and fugere, which is flee, and eum, which is place. So refugium really means fleeing back to a place or returning back to a place. And it, what it means biologically is a place to survive temporary adverse times. Like, you know, traditionally it's been used to talk about where all the species hang out during glacial periods, um, which might not necessarily be like the best, you know, climates or environments for a lot of species. And the idea of a refuge is that, you know, things will get better at some point in the future, right? The ice will retreat, species can expand their, you know, populations and their ranges back into those deglaciated spots. And we've started talking about places that will be climate refugia or climate refuges for species today under global warming. And Steve really kind of pushed back on this idea and and hammered home the point that for a lot of populations, things will not get better ever. There may be a point of no return for those species. You know, CO2 has a long residence time. It might take hundreds to thousands of years or longer to draw down. Um, 
And it was a little bit kind of scary because he was talking about how we're really not doing a great job of meeting our Paris targets of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, we might be underestimating climate sensitivity to CO2. Um, but he then started talking about how the paleo record shows that there are some places where you know, we've seen persistence of species in place for more than 20,000 years, even though lots has happened, a lot has happened kind of around those species. And they often are temporary, but refugia do exist. And so what we really need to do as a scientific community is figure out how to identify where those refuges might be for species, like those, even those transient havens, if they're, even if they're short-lived, they're going to buy time for a lot of species until things can get better or until, or until we can you know, move them around to better habitats or protect more areas. So we have to think about building or designing these habitat chains or archipelagos of refuges, which is the term he used, mm -hmm. that will allow us to facilitate the migration of species. And it was just a really, a really cool talk that I think was a nice balance of realism and also opportunity and kind of avoided some of the doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that sounds really interesting. Unfortunately, I missed that talk, but sounds sounds really great. That's okay. I live tweeted it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we, you know, we were there both as scientists presenting our own work and and uh, enjoying the work of other scientists. But um, because of this podcast, we also decided to walk around and take advantage of this captive audience of these scientists during the poster session. And the poster sessions, if you've never been to one, they're very lively. Um, there's often refreshments, there's a, a, a cash bar, um, people are kind of wandering around and seeing each other. There, there are friends I have that I only see at these meetings. Um, you kind of wander and, and look at the posters and kind of find someone who doesn't have anyone to talk to and you ask them about their research and it's really cool. And so uh, Ramesh and I actually went around during the poster session for a couple of nights and uh, just asked some of the scientists there two questions. So these are all ecologists. Again, as Ramesh said, uh, the meeting is not specifically about climate change, although it's pretty difficult to study anything about ecology these days without being at least aware of the impacts of climate change. Um, so we asked scientists at ESA two questions. First, why does climate change matter to you personally? And second, how does climate change impact what you study? So there's sort of a, a personal answer here, and there's also a professional answer. And um, we got a lot of answers, but we uh, a lot of them kind of fell into some different themes. And we, we want to play a few uh, of those responses for you. So the, the first group of responses we got um, really hint at this idea about places and landscapes that are really important to people. And uh, a lot of folks actually talked about forests. So here are some of the ecologists talking about um, climate change and forests. Hi, my name is Adrian Keller and climate change is important to my science. I'm studying how climate change, how forests respond to climate change and uh, trying to understand what our forests will look like in the future and how they'll regulate carbon and nitrogen cycling into the future to create those safe and healthy environments. Hi, my name is Paige Koba and I am an incoming PhD student at UC Davis. Um, I grew up in the forests of the Pacific Northwest and I've always loved natural systems and I'm interested in studying how climate change affects carbon cycling in those forests and forest fire and drought responses so that we can understand where those forests are headed and what we can do to ensure their safety and ours. Hello, my name is Henry Adams and uh, climate change affects me because 
I love forests. I love spending time in forests. I have fond memories of camping in forests. I love trees. And climate change, you know, threatens forests. It's actually, it turns out what I study is, is how uh, droughts related to changing climate could lead to loss of forest cover, losses of the spaces that I, you know, really love. But I would say, you know, not everybody loves forests. You don't even have to enjoy forests just for what they are in order to um, sort of have the benefit of what forests do to the planet's climate in terms of pulling so much CO2 um, out of the atmosphere, storing it in their woody parts, uh, in their trunks and in their roots, and, you know, actually reducing um, the amount of anthropogenic warming we're having right now. So that's why I study that. So those are some really powerful answers. Um, yeah. I mean, Forests are important to us both culturally, but also scientifically. Ramesh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I although I live out here in the Midwest, um, you know, I, I'm from New York. So sort of what some of my first ecology experiences are in the forests of the Northeast. Um, so I have a personal connection to them too. But, you know, scientifically, we think of forests as this place of wilderness. And, and you know, we've all looked up at a tall tree, but those trees are doing a lot for climate change, right? Those trees are taking in a lot of that carbon dioxide and storing that in their big, heavy trunks. And so, you know, forests become this, what is called a carbon sink, right? So a place to drop off, essentially suck up all this carbon and store it for a really long time. And so trying to understand the science of how elevated carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and how elevated temperatures is gonna change the ability or impact the ability for these forests to take in that carbon, maybe the rate at which they take in that carbon. Um, these are all open questions that are actively being researched. Um, are there, you know, an interesting question is, is there a limit? You know, can forests, do forests just stop mm -hmm. taking in carbon after they've at a certain point? Um, and what does that mean for conservation? Right. And what does that mean for our ability to um, continually utilize forests to mitigate and fight climate change. So that's a really, as an ecosystem, it's, I understand scientifically why people are connected to it and its connection to climate change, but also personally, um, it's a really great, uh, people connect to it because I think it's such a dynamic and sort of awe-inspiring ecosystem. Not to say prairies aren't, but, you well, know, uh, <laughs> I do, I have to say, I do miss the prairie sometimes too, um, having gone to grad school in the Midwest and then now I've yeah. moved, moved to Maine. But, um, you know, here in Maine, uh, I think we have something like four, 14,000 trees per person. Um, so obviously forests and trees are a really big part of our cultural identity in the state. They're what draw a lot of people to the state to, um, I mean, our, we're called vacation land for a reason. It's our, you know, it's our oceans and our forests um, that really draw people. And also they're mm -hmm. hugely important economically. Forestry is a huge industry here. And I often talk to uh, a lot of foresters in the area who are keenly aware of the challenges of climate change. They want to know how the, you know, the, the trees that are important to them as a crop are going to grow in the future. What's going to be able to grow here in Maine? What's going to be leaving the area and moving into Canada? You know, what resources are we going to, to lose and kind of pass down the road? Um, so yeah, forests, um, and of course, you know, forests are, are important to me, you know, just because they are the, they're like the landscape that I grew up in. And so, yeah, I definitely have a very strong, just personal connection to, to forests, you know, just growing up with my grandmother, we used to walk through the woods and, 
always pick up little bits of things like leaves and sticks and and pine cones and things on and we would make these jars these little mason jars and um mm-hmm. uh you know they were like a little souvenir of our walks and yeah i just it's a it's a they're, they're a magical place yeah so a lot of uh the people that we talked to seem to be working in these really sensitive systems it's it's like they're really seeing the Im- the early impacts of climate change they are they're researching the canaries and the coal mines and a lot of the folks we talked to mentioned sea level rise and changes in water in particular so let's hear some of those voices hi my name is emilio runa i'm a professor at the university of florida and climate change matters to me because i live in florida and we're one of the states that's really susceptible to its effects especially sea level rise so that's going to have consequences not just for me but for my kids and uh, climate change affects what I study I, because I do a lot of my research in the Amazon. And as temperatures rise, it's, the potential is there for uh, there to be a tipping point in which the Amazon becomes a much drier force than we're used to, um, maybe even uh, starts to move towards becoming a savanna. And that's going to have really important consequences for the flow of rainfall and global temperature patterns. Hi, uh, my name is Luke Lamb. I'm uh, a graduate student at Florida International University. Uh, climate change matters to me because I love wetlands, and wetlands are really threatened by climate change, particularly the Everglades. Um, sea level rise is real, and it's happening in Miami, and if we don't take the proper precautions, we will lose the Everglades. Hi, uh, my name is Binod Basel. I'm from University of Louisville, Kentucky, doing PhD here. Uh, climate change is important personally for me because first, I'm from Nepal, the country of mountains. And uh, so climate change, a part of it is uh, increase in temperature. And so the glaciers and mountains are at risk. Hi, my name is Tom Miller, and I'm an ecologist uh, based at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And that is the first reason why climate change is important to me, because I live in Houston, Texas, which some people might know is the place that was pretty devastated by Hurricane Harvey last year. And my home did not flood, but many friends and loved ones lost their homes. And that was really a, a manifestation, to the best of our knowledge, of climate change. It was an outcome of higher temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, the types of events that we're going to see with increasing frequency and intensity under climate change. So my research also has a connection to climate change and the idea of extreme events because they are becoming more common under climate change and we don't have good analogs for them in our long-term data sets. We don't know what happens in a more variable world because we've, we have no previous history with it. So I can't even imagine what it's like to see your system changing right before your eyes, maybe because I'm a paleoecologist, so everything I study has already happened in the past. But I mean, imagine your system changing during the span of your PhD, right? Like from when you start to when you finish, something is different. Right, right. I mean, and that's, you know, what's striking about um, the quotes we just heard, um, you know, sort of they're placed, a a few of them are placed in the context of sort of water hitting the southern coast, right? Whether it's Florida or sort of water mm. um, expanding or, 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 or battering the southern coast. Um, but, you know, those, the relationship between climate change and water can even hit far off places like Nepal and the glaciers there. Um, and that, you know, that frozen water, um, if it unfreezes, right? That, that frozen water is critical to those people uh, and their livelihoods. Um, I know it didn't show up in the quote, but uh, when we were talking to Binod, he 
specifically pointed out the potential loss of tourism dollars in Nepal um, if those glaciers go away. And so while oftentimes things like Hurricane Harvey and sea level rise, you know, cities being put underwater are oftentimes sort of the the big poster child for the water impacts of climate change, um, things like melting glaciers and the livelihoods of people that depend on those glaciers are also just as much impacted by um, a changing climate. Well, yeah. And one thing that also really struck me about these clips was the fact that the relationship between climate change and water is, is one of extremes. It feels like, you know, again, you mentioned the idea of water kind of battering the coast or these, you know, floods, sea level rise, uh, intense storms. And here in the Northeast where I live, we are seeing a huge uh, increase in extreme events and precipitation. So we're getting, you know, really big rainfall events that are happening, you know, more and more. And of course, back where I went to grad school in Madison, Wisconsin, they're having these incredible flooding events, right? Like as, as, as we're recording this, right, there are people who are, who are still trapped in their homes or isolated in their communities because of this unprecedented flooding from, from rainfall. I think there was something like, you know, 10 inches of water falling in a day or something, which is just huge. And, um, and then, but for other people, it's a complete loss of water, right? It's drought, it's melting glaciers, um, changing, you know, snowfall, uh, you know, places that are losing their snow. And so they can't support a ski industry anymore. Um, and so it's, it, it definitely feels like we have this sort of reshuffling of where water is on the planet and the availability of water and, which is definitely one of the frontiers, right? Trying to understand how precipitation will be affected by climate changes is is definitely like the state of the art, right? That's what we're trying to figure out um, in in a lot of our community. Right, and I, you know, as you were as you were bringing up those examples, um, it got me. It reminded me of you know the intense monsoons that are happening in southern right. India right now in Kerala. Um, a number of people have lost their lives. I think um, something like three hundred people have lost their lives. Um, due to sort of record monsoons. And and India is a place, you know, I grew up going to India in the summer, so I've been through some some heavy monsoons. And, um, you know, so the fact that this place that is already sort of culturally, socially, ecologically sort of adapted for monsoons, even if those systems are like, whoa, we are getting a lot of rain, um, that, that says yeah. something. Um, and so... I know I'm breaking sort of a cardinal rule of, of, you know, sort of mixing weather and climate, but, you know, that idea of, you know, not attributing a single event to climate change. But again, it's this accumulation of these high rainfall events, these, you know, um, these big monsoon seasons, that relationship between climate change and water is something critical that impacts everybody. Yeah. I mean, the, there's the, the adage, the, I think it's the Mark Twain quote that I like to bring up, which is weather is... Sorry, climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And, you know, when when what you're getting is defying your expectations because it's it's different and that keeps happening over and over again, that's when you start to, you know, to really see these large scale patterns. It's maybe one rainfall here or one one storm there isn't sufficient to be able to be attributed to climate change. And, you know, it's it could be potentially irresponsible to do that as a journalist or a scientist. But over and over again, when you see the same patterns, that's when you can start saying, okay, maybe storms like this will be more frequent or 
you know, monsoon events like this will be more frequent. So yeah, as you said, it's important to be really clear with your language. Um, and also that personal connection that you brought up that, uh, that came up in a lot of the responses, you know, a bunch of people talked about their kids, for example, as a reason why they cared about climate change and why it matters. Um, and for a lot of the responses, there was a sense of personal urgency, whether it was, you know, related to your health or, uh, even a personal connection with a favorite species. And so a lot, a lot of people really seemed just just driven by this sense of a, a personal connection to to climate change. So let's hear a few of those responses. Hi, I'm Alejandro Ordonez. Um, climate change affects me personally because allergies. I mean, changes in environmental conditions and changes in uh, temperature are actually going to change um, technological effect and release pollen and study my my research because is the focus of my research climate change and the effects of it on how species are moving around due to that and uh, change environmental conditions hi my name is austin climate change affects me because i really want to see polar bears and we are losing polar bears climate change affects my science because bees are used to certain temperatures and certain uh, factors of their environment and changing them could negatively impact them. Hi, my name is Emma. I study the effects of climate change on adaptation and it's likely that under extreme warming scenarios, species won't be able to adapt in time to cope with the rapid climate change that humans have induced. So what I really love about these answers is that they remind us that scientists are people. You know, we're motivated to study the things that we already care about. Um, or maybe we grew up, you know, loving the natural world and that's what inspired us. And, and we might have gone into fish or earthworms, but that doesn't mean that we don't still love rhinos or, um, you know, redwoods. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, being at this meeting, you get to talk to all these scientists and you realize that although we can use all these big sciencey words, um, when it comes to topics like climate change, um, we're still all kids at the zoo, right? There are animals mm-hmm. we want to see. Um, and there are sort of parts of nature that we are just super curious about in the most innocent manner. And so when there's a threat, potential threat to those systems through something like climate change, um, we don't want to lose the opportunity um, to see those things. And so that provides a sense of urgency. And then, you know, who likes allergies, frankly? So, um <laughs> You know, of course, if, if allergies are getting worse for you because of climate change, we got to fix climate change. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, these are all really good. I mean, this is one thing I, I think about a lot because, you know, even just today I had a couple of people on the Internet um, <laughs> telling me there's so much uncertainty. You're, you're trying to drive trillion dollar policy changes based, you know, when we don't know yet, which, you know, I get the precautionary principle to some extent, but the thing about reducing emissions is that there are so many collateral benefits to doing that, that, you know, if we drive fewer cars or the cars we drive are cleaner, even if that has no impact at all, let's pretend for a second that we're wrong about greenhouse gas emissions. There will be cleaner air, right? (laughs) Um, My nephew who has asthma will have you know fewer days that he has to be on steroids because he can't breathe you know during you know wildfire wildfire seasons that are getting longer and starting earlier um, or you know really bad smog days um, and so you know even if like there are these personal reasons and, and public health reasons to to do this you know even even if it turned out that we were all wrong about warming 
um, yeah, I don't know. Like that's my, one of my personal bugbears is like, no, there are plenty of other reasons to reduce emissions. It's still a good thing to do. Yeah. I'm reminded of a, of a sort of a cartoon that I often see utilized. I've seen, I saw it a couple of times at ESA. Uh, I know I've used it in my classroom. Um, it's the idea of what's the worst thing that's going to happen by us, like you said, reducing emissions, right? What's the, what's the world going to come to cleaner air, clean energy, you know, what's the, <laughs> Oh no, we'll, we'll save money on, on, on gas. Oh no, right. darn. Right. Right. <laughs> Another great thing that we saw at these poster sessions, while there were a lot of graduate students and postdoctoral researchers and professors, we also met some really, really amazing undergraduate researchers who wanted to, who were willing to talk with us about climate change. Um, we met some really amazing undergraduate researchers from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they talked to us about their concerns about climate change and the science that they are doing and the science that they are working on to um, understand climate change. So let's hear some of their voices. Hi, my name is Sarah Howe. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, we're studying shallow lakes, and as climate increases, shallow lake is very susceptible to environmental impacts, especially fish communities in shallow lakes um, are very vulnerable, and they're easily affected by environmental effects. So when uh, things drastically change in a short period of time, our shallow lakes are really going to feel those effects. Hi, my name is Claire Herzog, and climate change matters to me because I grew up playing ice hockey, and if climate change continues to happen, there are uh, going to be no more ice rings for me to skate on. So um, it also affects my research because I study shallow lakes, and due to the nature of them being very shallow, they're easily altered by even uh, small temperature changes. So if climate change continues to happen, we're going to see uh, really big impacts on these systems, especially in their food web dynamics, which is what I focus on. Hi, my name is Catherine Hegedus, and climate change is important to me because I was recently studying abroad in Australia, and I saw firsthand um, the coral reef death and just like how the coral reefs were being bleached and the habitat loss there. And in my science, uh, climate change affects a lot of fish populations and then the temperature oxygen squeeze of like where they can live and how they can survive within lakes. So, yeah, I think it's really great um, that students at that level, at the undergraduate level, got the opportunity to work on these really great questions. Um, you know, they are the climate change generation. And frankly, they did an amazing job presenting their research. I know as an undergraduate, I couldn't do what they did. I would be stumbling and fumbling all over myself. So um, props to them. They did a great job. Yeah. And also just to kind of get back to this this thread that's gone through this episode of hope, um, you know, people often ask me, like, how do you keep going? And honestly, like, this is why I don't give up. It's students like these, like these students are just getting started. They have known about this problem their entire lives. They've seen the generations that came before them do nothing. And it just passed the, the buck down, kick the can down the road to them. And they're still passionate about working on this problem. They haven't given up. They haven't just decided to throw it all in and decide like, you know, oh, whatever, too bad. My fish are screwed. Like no more ice hockey for me. Like, so if they can still be hopeful and go into this with that much energy and passion at this stage of their careers, then I think those of us who are in our mid-career and higher can can keep going as well, right? Yeah, they were, you know, when we were talking with them about their science, they were 
not doom and gloom. They were very matter of fact. This is what's happening to our lake systems. And this is these are some of the changes we're seeing. This is how I studied it. And this might be a way to address it. And these might be some of the consequences. Um, they could have been very not hopeful. They could have said, well, this is what's happening to our lake. So forget it. But they weren't. And, and that, as you said, that's really the hope. That's where the hope is. And we should all um, take heart from that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it, you know, at the end of the day, like I try, I try to, to ultimately balance, you know, realism with optimism. So I try to be hopeful. Um, and because that, that hope is going to inspire me to work hard um, to, to make those hopes come true. Um, but at the same time, you know, we want to be realistic about what's going on in the world and, and, you know, to see with clear eyes, but at the same time, you know, you have to be sustainable too. Um, and so this, uh, you know, this, this ties in actually, um, with a question that we had from one of our listeners, um, and, uh, who, uh, Spencer McLean, uh, asked this question via email. So, um, for those of you who are, who are new to the show, um, or haven't listened to the last few episodes, we have a relatively new segment where we're inviting our listeners to ask us anything. And we really mean anything. We've talked about socks. Uh, and today um, we will be uh, talking about uh, the future, um, which is you know perfect timing for this episode. So Spencer asks, taking into account all that you know about climate change, both natural and anthropogenic, how do each of you imagine the world will be socially, politically, and environmentally a hundred years from now? Uh, so this is a tough question, but I think a really great one. And we'll, we'll probably tell you a lot about our personal, our personalities, Ramesh and mine. Um, if you had had others on the episode, it, it might've been really, really different responses, who knows, but um, you want to, you want to take this one on first, Ramesh? Sure. Um, you know, to continue with the theme of hope, I really see us as a human society rallying around uh, climate change and rallying around fixes for climate change. So I don't see us in the world that was painted by Pixar and WALL-E where our planet becomes a, a, a pile of trash and we are just living in spaceships off of the planet um, being carted around by some sort of floaty hovercrafts. Um, I see us coming together and taking on grand challenges. And we have a history of being able to do that. Um, you know, just thinking about how we have tackled a number of global diseases, you know, things like polio, those things we have rallied as a global society, irrespective of race, religion, ethnicity, politics, we have come together to solve those issues. And I think climate change, although maybe it doesn't seem like it's going to get there, I think we're going to get there. We have to. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually inclined to agree with you. Um, and, and I'll say this as someone who reads a lot of dystopias, you know, I, I love to <laughs> read, if, if that's the right word, um, you know, books like The Handmaid's Tale or Margaret Atwood's other great environmental trilogy, um, the Mad Adam trilogy, or um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road or, the you know, parts of Cloud Atlas that, you know, show us these very dark possible futures, um, you know, the, the dark timelines. But Inherently, I'm I'm really like a Star Trek girl at heart. Right? I believe that we will get to that post-scarcity future where we come together and you know 
embrace sharing of technology and peaceful solutions and cooperation and you know that we will be motivated by the climate crisis and by you know this incoming generation that really seems on top of this to to action and this because this generation is not just a climate generation they're also a big social justice generation and so i, I really think that um you know, I think we're going to be really motivated to do the right thing, not just because it's right for the environment, but because it's right for us. It's right for people. It's fair. It's 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 a, it's just. Um, so I see us as, um, you know, you know, as 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 sharing. I see us as um, uh, innovating, and I, I have a really hopeful view of the future for sure. Yeah. We'll see what happens, I guess. Someone should tell us. Yeah. <laughs> someone should visit the future and then come back and let us know. Yeah, someone needs to get the flux capacitor built and, uh, you know, race the DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour and let us know what's going to go on. <laughs> well, and it's just really funny because, um, you know, I'm often asked if I'd rather visit the past or the future. Actually, my husband, Jeremy, and I were playing this board game and, uh, this is a brand new board game called house of danger. It's a choose your own adventure game, like literally based on the style of those old eighties, like, choose your own adventure novels that I grew up with and loved. And Oh yeah, I know. Oh my gosh. Novels. So this is, if you love those novels, you should check out this game. And at one point uh, you, without too many spoilers, you go into a, a I think it's like the temporal uh, experimentation room or something, but there's a time machine and you can choose to go into the future, stay in the present or go into the past. And like my husband and I looked each other dead in the eye and I was like, past. And he was like, future. And we actually rock, paper, scissored, scissored over it because he was like, I want to go in the future. I'm like, but what if we get to see mammoths? And he's like, that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's so funny because like I, you know, I, we could, if I was given the choice to look at the future and find out where we were going, I don't think I would do it. I want to, I want to know where we've gone, where we've been so that I can understand where we're going. Um, and uh, cause I don't know, I want to, I want to stay hopeful. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't think I want to know. I do enjoy that you make major decisions like that based on rock, paper, scissor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if we were like literally outside this time machine and cause the time machine is like about to explode. And, and so you have to make a choice. You can't just like leave the room. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we literally rock, paper, scissored for it because, um, we couldn't, because we, we couldn't agree. And I won, by the way, we did go to the past, uh, and it was worth it. Let me just put, put that, put that, put that out there for, for all of you gamers out there. In a, in a totally unrelated, unclimate change related note, you know, growing up, I knew those choose your own adventure books and I initially had a very bad relationship with them because I would just, I didn't get them initially. So I would just read them all the way through. And so I just oh. did not get the story left turns that were happening. It just made no sense to me. And then I think <laughs> my older brother was like, Hey, you know, you're supposed to jump to the other section of the book. That's why it's <laughs> your own adventure. Once well, I figured that out, they became much uh, better books for me. That's awesome. Yeah, you just had to like adjust yourself a little bit <laughs> to that reality. Um, the the problem my husband and I had is that um, we had a really hard time leaving choices behind because in this, it's like, do you go down and you do you go into the 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 garden with the the topiary? Uh, you know, uh, 
hedges or do you go into like the the mausoleum or whatever and so it's there's you don't get to do one then get to do the other one right it's not necessarily like an open world video game and so um those like i i would have a lot of ex existential angst about making a choice that you couldn't just revisit or, or or go back and do and and our desire to kind of do everything and see everything in the story meant that we died a lot <laughs> because we just didn't know when to like cut our losses. Like we have the gemstone, let's go, like, let's go on to the next chapter. No, it was like, well, we never went back and looked at that other thing. And then it turns out it's like a pit and you fall in and die. And, and there's a metaphor there for the future hmm. somewhere, but um, anyway, I think we're going off the rails. So <laughs> we'll call it, we'll call it a day here at uh at warmer guards um so today's show i think you know there was a lot of hope in in this episode um and we try very hard to be a, a positive show um as much as we can and to to tell the human side of climate change and um and so you know we hope that you have enjoyed the show along with us um especially as we've grown uh we're always looking for sponsors uh which will help out our amazing producers who are uh, completely doing this as volunteers. Um, there are also some things we would love to be able to do, like have um, transcripts of our show as well. Um, so if you're interested in becoming a sponsor um, or if you have some feedback, um, please, you can email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. Uh, we'd love to hear your ask me anything questions, uh, ideas for future episodes, um, all the stuff we're doing wrong, uh, why we should be depressed about climate change and not, you know, hopeful. Um, you can also subscribe to the show anywhere that you listen to podcasts. For my co-host Ramesh and our wonderful producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, um, we hope that you all stay positive and hopeful and don't give up. Um, remember, we are all in this together. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>